0: I'm Alice Living, best selling author, personal trainer, and host of Give Me Strength, where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same. Welcome to Give Me Strength. My guest today is someone who I had the pleasure of meeting at the 2019 Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year Awards. I so viscerally remember being sat in the audience and hearing about her story and real triumph over adversity. And I'm just so excited to have her as a guest on the podcast today. She's been someone that we've wanted for ages, so I'm really happy that we could make it happen. Khadija Mella was the first hijab wearing jockey in a competitive British horse race. Despite being new to horse racing, she won the Magnolia Cup on her Mount Haverland. What I love about her is that her story was the subject of an incredible TV documentary called Riding the Dream, which came out in 2019. And her story of just really throwing yourself into something and just having incredible bravery to take risks and to overcome adversity is incredible, and I'm just so happy to have her with me today. Khadija, how
1: are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm really excited to be on this podcast, and I'm, I'm glad that you chose me to be a uh, part of your incredible podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I think you have such an amazing story,
0: and I'm like I said in in the introduction, I came across you at the Sunday Times Sportsman of the Year Awards, which I have to highlight as a really great place to. Hear differing stories in the world of sport, particularly female sport. I think as someone who has always got an interest in incredible females doing amazing things, particularly with the slant of sport, it's really, really amazing to go and kind of hear all these different stories of what women have been up to. But I think that particularly your story, it really stood out to me as something that just seemed so incredible. So I'd love to take you back and hear about you growing up and you really finding that You wanted to ride a horse, which was something I guess that was
1: relatively unusual for the area in which you grew up in. For sure, yeah, I was that sort of weird horse girl at school, but I was just the weird horse girl that didn't have a horse, and like everyone was kind like sort of confused about where this like passion for horses came from. Um, In primary school, I had an obsession with animals, and I was like, I'm going to be a veterinary nurse. Um, I'm going to be a vet, Uh, and that was like my career aspiration. Um, And then I realized I was really bad at chemistry and I was like, maybe (laughs) not the best idea. But then I was like, you know, my parents were very supportive and they they allowed me to have pets growing up. And I had cats. I had at one point 18 bunnies because they kept having babies. Oh my Um, goodness. Yeah, they just had (laughs) like litter after litter. Um, I had a turtle. (laughs) Um, Did I say turtle? No, I had frogs. I had a pond and frogs um budgies and you know the obsession continued to a point that i was like you know the ultimate sort of interaction humans have with animals has to be you know the interaction with with a a rider and a horse um because it's sort of like a really cool partnership and bond and i felt like i was you know it was like the i don't know it was like the forbidden fruit because like i lived in south london and there wasn't a horse for at least like i don't know 30 miles (laughs) um so for me like the obsession for, you know wanting to ride or be with a horse or be around a horse um stem from just my love of animals um i also really love this uh dreamworks film called spirit um which is about a native indian man and his partnership with a horse and i mean, just like throughout history horses and humans have like beautiful relationships and i was like why am i missing that why do people some people get that privilege and i don't um and then my mom found out about ebony horse club which is a riding club in brixton um which is like crazy to me because you know i lived in peckham which is like a stone's throw away from brixton and the idea of horses being in brixton to me like i lived there and i was like that that can't be possible and i thought it was a theater production i thought it was a theater club um where they like pretended to have horses i was like where are they keeping them where they're hiding these horses (laughs) and um there's like an estate or like a block of flats that were like Quite enclosed, but they had like a lot of greenery inside, um, and I thought it was just a park. Turns out they changed the park into a little stables with nine horses, um, and they had access to the greenery. But the horses took regular holidays because it's still quite, you know, intense to live in a in a city. Um, But yeah, there was a riding club, and I was like, this is insane. I need to be. I need to sign up and be there immediately. Turns out they um they had a catchment area to sort of like benefit the local community. And I was just on the cusp of that catchment area. But my parents were very persistent and managed to get me there two years later. (laughs) Wow. So it took two years for you to to get in there. Yeah, the waiting list is obviously humongous. It's seven quid for a lesson. Well, I think now it's nine. No, it was seven quid. And I think, I believe it's now three pounds for a lesson, which for horse riding is unheard of. And obviously, there are plenty of young people about this. see see the horses and I'm like, and I'm really curious um, so the weighing list is is huge. There's a huge demand for riding um, within these communities. It's just hard
0: to come by. Yeah. And I guess a lot of us can relate to your love of horses, particularly in the sense that they are just the most incredible animals. But I think to really pursue that dream of of connecting with one in a meaningful, in a meaningful way is so inspiring. And I guess you clearly had that drive to just make it work in whatever way you could. And I think it's so serendipitous in a way that you heard about that um that riding club and that you were able to eventually get in there but I guess it's reflective of unfortunately the lack of access when it comes to underprivileged people in in those environments in the city mainly environments getting access to horse riding um and it'd be really interesting to hear you speak to why you think that is and I guess why the equestrian industry I guess hasn't really
1: evolved in the same way that diversity in other sports maybe has a bit. It's a question or a topic that I continuously discuss and debate within my own team of or sphere of people that I I connect with. Um I feel like it's such a huge and expensive project to start writing um especially, especially you know on a practical level in terms of having the space and the the initial uh investment. I think it's it's, it's not something that anyone Feel is worth their time, um, but the rewards that have come out of Ebony Horse Club, or the rewards of uh, the, the the way I have been affected um, by the equestrian world and, and horse racing and, and riding in general, is worth the investment. But no one really sees their labor until sort of like later down the line after a few years, and and watching all these alumni sort of students from the Ebony Horse Club go on to do amazing things. Um, and I, I've met so many young kids from Ebony who have benefited immensely. And it's not something that's like tangible. Um, it's not like a figure of like, you know, this person has made X amount and has gone into a career and made this much money. As a result, you know, Ebony Horse Club has been successful. It's something that, you know, develops soft skills within a, a young person, um, potentially helps to solve, uh, you know, a mental health condition. That isn't something that's tangible. Um, and, and when you go to Ebony, you can feel it, but you can't really necessarily like put a name or a, or a number to it. Um, and then going into the racing world, I feel like they're, they're almost uh, two different leagues of equestrian sport. Um, cause I sort of went from a riding, riding school level to a racehorse level, which the, the best comparison is going from, you know, driving a Nissan micro or something to driving a Formula One car, like they're two different spheres of, of existence, two different industries. Um, and I, I definitely was thrown into the deep end, and I feel like uh, the team that I had surrounding me didn't quite understand or know how intense <laughs> the transition would be. Um, but I, you know, I, I, love, I love a challenge, um, I love learning new things, I continuously try to. You know do do more and and learn more so to me it was really exciting. Um, Yeah I I, I really hope that in the future riding becomes more accessible to people like me because you know there's talent that is untapped in all these communities that could enhance the performance within sport and make it more exciting so it benefits everyone to have you know access and, and and more young people you know, being given the opportunity to perform and and display their hidden talents within the the sport that they didn't even realise they could have a talent in. Because I didn't realise I'd be good at horse racing. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to the value of
0: sport, um, regardless of how that looks, whether that's horse racing, whether that's cricket, whether that's football. um, I think that one of the things that I really get from going to the Sunday Times Sportsman of the Year Awards is that you see the true value of real grassroots sports and what that does for communities and what that does for individuals, particularly in areas where there might not be other opportunities at the same level afforded to those people. The level of confidence, like you said, soft skills, sense of community, confidence that that can give kids is invaluable. And you're absolutely right. It might not be that it's sort of tangible or monetary gain, but actually in other ways, it sort of tenfold pays back into that environment, into that community because of what it does for those people. And I think you know, it's so nice to hear about those initiatives like Ebony Sports Club. But I also think um, it would be amazing to have that times 10, you know. I think I'd love to get into, you know, you spoke a little bit about your journey to going from driving a Nissan to driving a race car, <laughs> as you referenced it too. Um, you were obviously riding, um, I guess, as a as a kind of hobby. What was the point where, first of all, you realized that this was something that you were actually good at? And then secondly that you could therefore then take it to the next level and actually do something that nobody
1: had done before. So I was relatively competent as a rider but I never really had any interest specifically at horse racing my brother he was more of the speed demon and he loved the idea of of horse racing and he tried it out did some pony racing it went well for him but he wasn't he didn't really develop further than that really um he went to new market which is like the heart of racing and and rode for a train i remember thinking i need to try this one day not because i feel like i'd be good at it just because i want to try it and then randomly this this guy called bonnie bell from itv racing he's a presenter became a patron of the ebony horse club and saw what was happening at ebony and loved it and was like i really'd like to support and help continue um the initiative and, and and you know try and get or boost the pub- publicity of the charity because he had a platform he suggested whether you know one of the young people at ebony would be interested in participating in the charity race the requirements were that you had to be 18 and that you had to be a woman um and there were only two individuals at the riding club at the time that were 18 and female so me and this other girl called alice <laughs> funnily enough oh, um another had alice. To like scrap <laughs> it out i'm joking we did scrap it out she basically uh, wasn't too keen on the idea. I I don't, I think they, they offered the training to me and her and I just picked it up a lot quicker and they decided to continue my training and I ended up doing my first assessment and failing it miserably because I was so underprepared. Um, I also was doing my A levels and I was fasting. So it was just really rough timing, but I just showed like a really, um, obvious interest in continuing. Um, and, and Oni Bell and, and the team around me were really supportive despite me, despite me failing. They were like, okay, let's let's give you a crash course, five-week intensive sort of like day-to-day program where you're going to be riding in the morning, gym sessions, simulator sessions, riding again, you know, like really intense um, sort of like boot camp program. Um, did my assessment again, and passed so happy days I was about to race it was a bit hectic (laughs) (laughs) and I just can't even imagine to go from and look
0: I'm not going to call myself a rider in any capacity I think I've sat on a horse about five times in my life but um, I cannot even imagine going from just like a gentle kind of trot around you know the kind of uh, ring I'm going to really mess up the language here but around (laughs) the kind of what I mean um yeah, yeah. So then go to actually like racing a horse and I mean that just must feel incredibly exhilarating but terrifying all at the same time um especially when you're so new to it and you're being thrown in the deep end is there anything that really helped you in that process apart from obviously the incredible team which it sounds like you had around you was there anything else at the time that you really feel was sort of driving you to succeed, you know, to really get that qualification and to be able to commit yourself to the race?
1: Well, I feel like the fact that I went to Newmarket and had a look around and I was like, I'm literally the only woman of colour. I'm the only, you know, hijabi from Million Miles. Um, so that that like that was something that I was like, if I'm gonna try this out, I'm gonna make a point that. Your background doesn't determine your success. It was apparent that I was a bit of an outsider, and I don't feel like I, you know, I went to a private school after uh, primary school, and I've always been the outsider, and I always felt like I had a point to prove to be like your background doesn't determine how successful you can be in whatever field. Um, I was I was in private school in a bursary scheme scholarship scheme, so like it was very obvious that I wasn't the you know usual private school student. So I felt like I had to outperform people to really justify my place being there. And my mindset has always been relatively similar. You know, riding at Ebony, we'd go to, you know, horse shows where it was very obvious and apparent we weren't the usual equestrian competitors. I'd be playing polo and everyone else would be like, sort of like, what are they doing here? Um, Who are these people? Going into racing, there was that slight sort of like, who is she, what's she doing here? And that sort of fueled my like, no, I'm going to make my space here. I'm going to prove the fact that, like, I deserve to be here because of my ability and my work ethic and not because of my background or anything else. To a certain extent, had my hand held in terms of my training. However, I could have given up at any point um, and been like, this isn't for me. Um, and there were moments where I was like, is this for me? Like, this is quite dangerous. I feel like this isn't worth the harm that I might be causing to my body because I did have quite a few falls, I had quite a few near misses, a few situations like four nail for a horse is one thing but I feel like the most terrifying thing that can happen whilst you're on a horse is losing control and the horse is just like, I'm, I'm going a million miles per hour and there's nothing you can do about it. That to me is the worst case scenario. Like I don't mind taking a tumble. It's just when they, they absolutely just bolt and I'm like, hello, what are we doing? And that happened several times because the fundamentals of being a jockey isn't necessarily going fast all the time. It's actually learning how to understand and control a horse and and build that partnership. One of the things that helped me the most in terms of my racing journey was finding or being able to connect with certain horses, specifically the horse that I had in my race, um, Haviland, is such a blessing. From the beginning, I got to ride him and I met him quite early on in my journey. And Haviland was just a gentle reminder, not all horses are trying to kill you and some of them are really lovely. Because you can sit on real demons that are trying to absolutely kill you and themselves. Um, and then you can sit on the most lovely horses ever. And you're like, you know, they're just like people. Sometimes you get along with them and sometimes you don't. And you can't base every interaction. We can't base all race horses on one interaction that you've had. My first time riding New Market, I was sat on two horses. And it was a beautiful sort of like introduction to how terrifying it could be because I sat on one horse, tried to kill me, or at least I, I misunderstood him. And we went a million miles per hour I overtook people which is a big no-no and I thought I was going to die and then the second horse I sat on um Kaplan hunches was such a beautiful ride it was so calm it felt so tranquil the sun was just like it felt like I was gliding through the air the sun was just warming the surface of the ground it felt like it was you know just a beautiful little movie scene um and that was all in the space of like an hour as in having that horrible experience and then that really beautiful experience back to back was just like a an introduction to what my journey will look like which is they're going to be really shit days and they're going to be really great days um but a plow on and hope that the next day will be a nice day yeah and I think it's an
0: amazing analogy for something that actually my mum used to say to me which is like I was never thrown off a horse because I didn't horse ride but you know if you're ever sort of thrown off a horse the number one thing that you have to do is get back on um, and ride again. Um, and I think that that's almost um, representative of, of a lot of the stuff that you've gone through on on that journey that you speak of is that a lot of the adversity that you've come up against, a lot of challenges, a lot of things that actually would stop a lot of people from continuing on that path. You've been that person that's just gone, nope, it's not going to stand in my way. I'm getting back on. I'm getting back on. And <laughs> yeah, I think quite that's, literally. <laughs> that's <laughs> literally, literally and metaphorically. And I think that's, you know, when I remember sitting and, and and hearing your story um at the awards dinner i remember thinking god that takes such guts to have that tenacity i know for myself if i was thrown off a horse once i would not be getting back on but for you to come up against uh cultural discrimination i guess and then also you know being a woman wearing a hijab as you said being a real trailblazer, you know being the first must be challenging in that you're the first person to put your head above the parapet and say i'm going to do this and whilst that's amazing in so many ways it also is a lot on your shoulders to carry um and to be representative of 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 that and i think that um like i said both both physically um to get back on but also metaphorically to to have to keep getting back up every time you're knocked down or something happens that's kind of a challenge it is really incredible
1: um it really really is i appreciate that thank you i definitely feel like initially i didn't quite know what i was signing myself up for you know, as an eighteen-year-old, you're presented with this, you know, exciting new opportunity that none of your friends have ever been offered. Um, despite going to a private school, it felt like a USP to my existence. Like I, I was like, I'm this unique. I'm going to have this unique experience that my friends, you know, haven't been offered. That anyone I know has never been offered or been part of. How can I turn it down? Um, sort of didn't really realize what I was walking myself into. Um, and initially, the training, as I said, was really difficult. And I struggled, but I had nothing to prove to anyone apart from just proving to myself that I've, I've given it a go. Um, mm. it, to me, the real battle started after I won the race. Um, like initially, you know, it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, the biggest thing for me was racing against these really well-established women and feeling like a complete, like genuine outsider. And, and, and that meant that I was the underdog, which is, which is fine. I like being the underdog cause then if you come last you were meant to come last type thing and if you come first it's a pleasant surprise and a celebration however when I did come first and it was a huge celebration afterwards having that pressure on myself to continue the performance and prove to anyone that I'm not this token black girl that everyone celebrated remember I only had three months of training before having this race so I'm in terms of my skill set it's still quite early days um I don't have that sort of you know five-year background in racing where you know I can quote you know all the race horses that I've won previously I can I can ride anything with confidence I still have days where I, I question my own ability um and to walk into an industry that has celebrated me to then you know be a representative I felt for the for the lot for the year after my race um I felt really it was daunting I felt really out of my depth um and I still feel slightly out of my depth and I've been very reluctant to continue Training and and performing because I felt like I had I had proven to myself that I I know I know I'm good enough but now I had all these inquisitive questioning individuals that have heard my story that want to follow my progress and make sure that I'm also proving to them that I'm good enough um, and I feel like I'm I'm I don't know I I definitely overthink it but I feel like after the win this pressure to perform definitely felt like it was on my shoulders and the pressure to be an example. Um, more than anything was what stressed me out the most because when you're the first of anything you set the standard um and if if i'm a bad standard that's going to mean that all the young people that are coming up behind me or or, or or aspiring to be jockeys after me will have to they will have to live up to the expectation i set um and i i want to set them a great expectation and a great bar i want them to look up to me and make sure that you know they don't feel disheartened but if if, if i leave an, a negative mark in racing whether it be a small thing you know some some people in the racing world and in any industry are waiting for you to slip up and i don't want to ever slip up so these young people ever have a bad sort of like role model because i'm the, currently i'm the only role model and to me that's really stressful <laughs> we'll be back after this
0: welcome back to give me strength and i totally hear that and i guess that must be it's a lot on your shoulders and the first thing i just want to say to you is we all make mistakes in our life and i think the biggest thing that i would say to you and look you have so much ahead of you and you can decide to carry on racing or you can decide not to and you can decide to do Whatever suits you best, and as much as you can feel the pressure of having to carve that path for the ones that come behind you, you also can't let it stop you from living your life and doing the things that serve you best. And I think that it's something that we see played out across a lot of women in various different top level sports. You know, they might win a win an event or win a race or win. You know, I'm thinking of Emma Raducanu as an example. Um, she won um you know and she was on every the front of every paper and she was you know in every campaign and then suddenly when the next wins then didn't come in it's like oh suddenly we're going to turn against her and what now and why is she not winning and it's like you just um are placed on a pedestal and it's a really really mentally and physically exhausting place to be and i i just want to say that i really sympathize with that with you um and i think that you know i i love everything about your honesty there because it's just so nice to hear you saying that it's a hell of a lot of pressure as much as you're so proud of what you've achieved the pressure that comes alongside that is is immense um i'd love to hear you know particularly in this space who really inspires you who are the people that really make you believe that you can do what you want to do um i really love the phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that's why it's so wonderful that you have really done what you've done and carved that path so that people behind you can really follow in your footsteps. Um, but for you, who were the people that you looked up to that made you believe I can achieve this?
1: I I can never really pinpoint one person of inspiration, but I think as a collective, there are various individuals that I've looked up to throughout my sort of training journey, but also just generally in life. Um, I think during my racing specifically, I had an individual called Hayley Turner that really sort of egged me on, helped me and gave me tips, even gave me some of her clothing. She's an amazing jockey um, and she helped. She helped with my transition because especially she was uh, a jockey from that sort of the racing background and lifestyle, but she also, I could socialize with her on a very comfortable level and I didn't feel like I was an outsider when I was talking to her Um, and that really helped with the transition into racing and she really Inspired me because she's generally one of the top tier jockeys, um, and and she was yeah I'm I'm really glad that I had her in my life at the time. <laughs> my mum always inspires me because the story of my parents and, and and how they managed to raise me and my my siblings and you know get to the stage where they have a daughter that has the opportunities to be on the front pages of newspapers and and to, has the opportunity to pub- publicise her talent. To me is is inspirational nez she's she's currently a nike ambassador um and she is a muay thai um fighter she's an incredible to this day i watch her videos and i'm like wow i want to be her um and she she's got a family and she's still you know a fighter winning her tournaments and to me that's incredible she's she is amazing just sorry to interrupt but also
0: she She's now doing stuff with Apple Fitness and I just think like her trajectory of success is amazing. She properly, properly
1: inspires me. It's same. Like I, if there's anyone I sort of want to be in the next 10 years, it's definitely Inez. <laughs> Um She's just like, she keeps her personality. She's unapologetically a Muslim woman doing her own thing and, and like she's just cool with it. I don't know. <laughs> um, another woman that, you know, I, I currently am finishing a degree, so on a more sort of like academic um, level, a woman called Yasmin, um, she is an Australian engineer um, and she's someone that I looked up to when I was thinking about doing my degree um, and I recently watched a show on on Netflix called The Swimmers um, and the story is based off a true story about an Olympic swimmer who um was a immigrant who was seeking asylum and her story is incredible. She went on to win the Olympics, um, win gold at the Olympics as a swimmer. Her name is Yasmin Wadini, I believe. There's so many people that have inspired me. I'd love to tap into your parents.
0: I'd love to hear more about them. Like you referenced that they are big inspirations to you, particularly your mom. Can you tell me a little bit about you growing up, what that was like?
1: My parents, um both are immigrants who came to the country in the 90s they met in london and got married and i was the first born in this country and you know my pet my dad specifically did what he could to provide you know with no qualifications really um sort of doing physical labor to get by um and he managed finances and saved well my mum managed finances and they both saved enough money to make sure that we had a good quality of life um you know despite being born and raised in peckham which isn't necessarily a rich community or area um you know i still went on holidays and trips to national forests in the uk they they did exactly or they did everything they possibly could to make sure that they could extract and utilize the money that they had to make sure that me, my siblings had the best quality of life um, you know they encouraged me to do sports I did karate for six years. I, I eventually got a black belt and then put that down and started something new and started doing rugby and then I went to private school and and did rounders and you know did did rowing. I did a, a regatta at Henley at one point and I thought, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, and my parents did exactly what they could um, to support me and always, always love to discuss my ambitions and and I'm really really lucky and grateful because I feel like with um s- certain people that are successful they like they have like an evil backstory that like I came from the trenches and my family was this and you know I, like they have like some traumatic backstory my parents are actually incredibly supportive and I'm I'm so grateful and I, I feel like reminding people um that you know being a good parent has a huge effect on how a kid a kid turns out. Oh my God, huge. And actually, that's just what
0: I was going to feed back to you is what I'm hearing there is like exactly how, you know, God willing, that is how I'd parent is. I just want my child to know that they can do and be anything that they want to be. And it doesn't matter if they're good, bad, terrible at anything. It's like, throw yourself into it. If you love it, great. If you don't, we'll find something else. And I think just giving a child the space to do that, it sounds like that was the perfect kind of um, place to then help you to see that you could really achieve and, and be anything that you wanted to be, which I guess is the springboard to, you know, you sat here now doing all the incredible
1: things that you're now doing. It's just, it's so nice to see that and to hear that. My parents always emphasized that if they were born in this country and had the opportunities that that I had, they would be extremely successful in terms of they'd utilize those opportunities. And I, I know, I know for sure that if my dad was raised in this country, he'd be like a professor of engineering or like he would be on the forefront of technology because he is just so good in terms of he like the guy took apart an engine, um, like a car engine and pieced it back together again. He can fix anything. I'm like, this dude should have, you know, had a master's or a PhD by now. And it 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 drives me crazy knowing I think fundamentally knowing that there are so many human beings out there that given the right opportunities and the right support could could do and be amazing things. And that frustrates me that only some people get the opportunity to display their like success or display their talent or their you know, have the opportunity to be the best version of themselves. And, you know, watching my mum and my dad struggle despite knowing that they had everything it takes to be the next I don't know billionaire with an amazing idea or you know to, to start that next successful business but just didn't have the facilities the support the education to do so um that infuriates me and you know watching my parents my parents always reiterated that you know I have these opportunities do not do not ever let them go to waste to me I never let I never let any opportunity go a mess um and I, I thought to myself why not like you never know what's on the next you know even if you open the wrong door at least you opened it and most of the doors that I've I've opened have led me to network with some interesting and really intriguing people and and most doors that I've opened have opened more doors so to me like it's always a beneficial move to just take opportunities to see where they go and just be friendly and 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 socialize like I think a lot of young people sell themselves short by not being open and and socializing and, and getting to know you know People that they wouldn't have necessarily got to know in, in, initially. Um, I feel like in the racing industry, it's very easy to just be very shut off because it is quite difficult to start a conversation with certain people that have never understood you or your background, your community, or your culture. Um, but I feel like once that ball, you know, gets rolling and you have that initial hello, how are you? Well, tell me about yourself. Once once you first have that initial conversation, that the rest of it is so beautiful because learning about other people's cultures and backgrounds is like a really enriching thing to do and to have and i feel like the more you know about people the less ignorance there is and the less likelihood of hatred um, you can't be you can't hate a friend or you can't hate someone that you've spoken to cuz you know you get you build that connection with them it's a lot dif- it's a lot more difficult to you know have discrimination towards someone that you've known for a while um, so I feel like the more interconnections that happen between people from different cultures and backgrounds, the less negativity there'll be in the world. So like, I always encourage people to just socialize and network when they can, um, no matter where you're from. And I feel like being part of the racing world has been a huge, like re- sort of, it reaffirmed my belief because, you know, on the outside, looking in, I walked into the racing world and I was like, they're going to all hate me and they're going to think I'm weird. Um, and they're going to want me to go away. And then I spoke to certain people in racing they've been really accepting and, and encouraging. Um, and a lot of people have, you know, put me on this pedestal and, and wanted to carry me further and further. Um, and they're just waiting for me to race again so they can continue celebrating me. However, I think I stand in, in my own way to a certain extent in terms of my my uh, overthinking. But hopefully when this degree is done as well, because I'm using that as an excuse um, <laughs> <laughs> by, uh, by May, Hopefully I'll be back in the saddle. Well, I'm, I am in the saddle, but I'll be back in the saddle more often and, and train more regularly so I can take another license out and maybe do some jump racing. Who knows? So talk to me about future plans and I want to hear it all. So the degree you're
0: currently studying is? Mechanical engineering. Wow. And how are you finding it?
1: <laughs> um, Thoroughly difficult. <laughs> um, if I'm completely honest, I would have dropped out in second year if I wasn't stubborn. <laughs> Wow, that's so interesting. And why was that? Um, during lockdown, as I said, I went from being put in this incredible limelight position where I was been thrown these incredible opportunities, um, alternative sort of like paths to life. Like, wow. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like in second year, I could have definitely taken a different angle in terms of my career and I'd be making some money right now instead of being, I don't know, 50K in student debt. Um, but I was like you know what I made this decision I want to be an I want to have this engineering degree I said that to myself since I was quite young I love physics I love applying physics and maths in real life situations um that translates to being an engineer and I said to myself I'm making I'm going to get this engineering degree despite my math teacher saying you probably wouldn't ever do that but sure anyway so it may be a little bit out of spite um but yeah, I also definitely wanted to live my dad's dream a little bit because I really enjoyed, you know, his technical skill. And and growing up, he'd be fixing, you know, my most my mopeds. He'd be fixing the car. And I'd be watching in awe. Um, and I really wanted to get this degree. Um, and during second year, as I said, I got I went from a hundred being in the limelight and and living my very best life to you know, lockdown, pandemic, not speaking to anyone, training stopped, you know, my degree stopped, um, it's all online and I have ADHD as soon as my attention span, as soon as, as soon as something isn't appeasing my attention span to a certain extent, or if I'm not doing anything that's, um, interactive, I, I sort of like slump really badly. Um, and I feel like the pandemic really had my sort of like coping mechanisms taken away from me. And I really went through my like worst flop era ever, Um, and second year was the worst. (laughs) And I was like, I hate this degree. I currently I'm not doing any physical activities that are bringing me any joy. Um, I then sort of like resorted to learning how to rollerblades. I just did that in the park, but even that was just like a bit boring after a while. And I was like, I actually hate second year. Um, And I meant that I wasn't picking. I I used sport as a coping mechanism to do well academically. and suddenly, if I, you know my sport wasn't there, academics all sort of went out the window and I was like, maybe it's time for me to throw the towel. And then I had a few friends that were like, don't you dare to so shout out to my friends. I'm
0: also hearing from you, though, that you're not a quitter. I don't have you down as a quitter. It sounds like almost everything that you've turned your hand to, you've, you've seen through in some way or another. But I think that it's really good to hear you talk about, I guess, that vulnerable side of not always being a high achiever and not actually always flying through and finding it as easy as possible you know having those difficult days and um struggling I guess as many of us do with um having things that hold us up taken away um and so I think it's yeah it's, it's really inspiring to hear that you you haven't quit and that you're still there I'm sure it's had its tough days for sure um But then um, I guess you referenced that racing is also on the cards on your horizon.
1: Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, So during my holidays, I'd always be back in the saddle regardless. Um, This is the first year that I've tried to do my studies alongside my training, um, mainly because I'm only doing a few modules this year. Um, But I feel like I definitely have more to prove to the racing world as well as myself because um, after my win, I didn't want it to feel like a one-off. Um, I want to prove to myself that my ability is 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 something that I can continue growing. Um, and you know, three months to a race and winning is a huge achievement. But what if I did a year of training? What then? Like, would I be winning more? Like, I want to explore that. Side at least before I'm old and you know crippled and I can't do much. Whilst I'm fitting, <laughs> whilst I'm fitting young, why not? Um, and yeah, I'd like to get another license as an amateur, um, and do a few more races, try out maybe jump racing, and then continue, uh, building the Riding a Dream Academy that, um, Naomi Lawson and Oni Bell started alongside me a year or well, two years ago now. Um, during lockdown, we created this initiative to sort of like bring young people from different urban communities um and facilitate a uh, a course for them to introduce sort of a, an introduction course to get them involved and interested in, in horse in horse racing so doing exactly what i didn't have uh, but on a larger scale um and sort of like finding these young people that are interested in and giving them a pathway because my brother, although he was introduced to racing, he wasn't given much of a pathway and he had to sort of like elbow his way through into the racing world and they weren't very forgiving with him. And a few others of my I have a few other friends that don't necessarily have the support that I had um, and they've had to elbow their way through the racing world and were not welcomed as, as much as I did. Um, and it's sort of like making sure that those stories don't happen because you know, my brother was talented, these friends that I'm referring to are extremely talented and have the work ethic. Um, It's just the support that they're lacking, which is a huge shame. So the Writing a Dream Academy is hoping to solve that issue. That's amazing. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can
0: go and check that out because it sounds incredible. Um, Khadija, I am going to close there because I feel like I could talk to you all evening, but (laughs) I need to let you go. Um, I'm so grateful for you giving up your time. Um, you really really inspire me and you're someone who I think is incredible Um, and it's been so insightful to hear your story and to hear how you really overcame so much adversity to sit here doing your engineering degree and also (laughs) hopefully being a superstar racer as well I see it in your horizon so thank you so much um, and I'm really really grateful for your time thank you
1: for sharing your platform with me and letting me tell my story
0: you so much for listening i really hope you enjoyed that episode i would love it if you could take some time to rate review, and follow the podcast as it really helps others to find it we have a new episode dropping each week so this will also ensure you don't miss out see you next time insanity group